Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wannabe Entrepreneur, the podcast about what's really like to bootstrap a company. And today I have another interview. I have uh, Chloe here with me. Hey, Chloe, everything good with you? Yeah. Hi, Tiago. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, thank, thank you for taking the time. Am I saying your name correctly, by the way? It's just Chloe? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's a very simple name. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> So Clo is the founder of These Two Shall Grow. It's a, an agency that uh, Clo founded and uh, helps um, her clients both with UX research and to bridge the gap between uh, digital products and their users' well-being. So a very, very interesting topic, especially in today's days with social media and everything. And we'll be discussing all of that and also learned that she studied uh, digital business and uh, she switched to UX. So this is also really interesting how this um, change came to be, how uh, Chloe built her company. So this is all the topics we'll be discussing here today. And uh, to kick things off, I would like to ask you, Chloe, to just give a little introduction about yourself. Who is Chloe? Yeah, I mean, your introduction is great. So I'm a UX researcher. I've been for, for some years now. Um, and I was also a UX designer. I also worked in conversational design. And now I'm making the switch um, towards more mindful design consulting and digital wellness coaching. So exactly what you said, making uh, well-being and our tech talk to each other and, you know, work together. Mm -hmm. And uh, you studied something different, right? Yeah, so I studied, um, the name of the master's is digital business. And uh, when I started working first after the master, I was um, a web project manager. Mm -hmm. So no design at all, but I was really, really interested in UX. And little by little, I made the switch of taking more and more UX design and UX research oriented jobs. Um, and that's how I made the switch towards UX. And when you got your first jobs, you were working for someone else, right? Or did yeah, you just immediately absolutely. start? Okay. Um, how important was that uh, part of actually working for someone else and getting colleagues and getting mentors for this um, new path that you have now, which is building your own company? Do you think you could have just started building your own company from the start? Probably not. It was good to get some experience of, you know, being an employee. Mm -hmm. um, what have you learned? Just workplace politics, kind of. <laughs> um, but you don't need that now, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes. Sometimes you okay. do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I also learned, yeah, some of the, you know, management ac um, aspects of being a web project manager, so managing the not just the project, but also managing the people, managing a small studio, mm -hmm. um, and seeing how devs work, seeing how designers work. Um, and then when making the switch towards being self-employed, um, having friends and just people around me who were also self-employed, not in right. the same field, but to whom I could ask questions, whether it's about... Um, how to do the paperwork 
or just in general client relationship, that was also very, very, very valuable. Mm. So surround yourself with like-minded people, right? People that are going through the same. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I've been uh, trying to be self-employed for the past nine months now. And uh, one thing that I've learned is it can be really a lonesome journey. And uh, people that are not entrepreneurs, they, they probably won't understand your struggles. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I totally agree. And uh, I, I'm all, one of my, I guess, main business now is actually a community for entrepreneurs. And uh, it really helps just to be, because I'm both the founder and the user, right? So it really helps just to chat with them and work with them. So I, I totally uh, agree with you. Um, but your, your passion is UX. Um, you didn't like the project management so much or is just the calling for UX that excites you the most? Yeah, it was a, a real calling as soon as I found out what it was and how it worked and how you work in this field. I really wanted to do it. Um, at first, when I started working as a web project manager, I thought, well, that's too late. I didn't study design, so... I'm just going to be someone who works with designers instead of being a designer myself. Mm -hmm. um, no, How old were you're you? 22, 23. It is not too late to change fields. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, important lesson there. Definitely. It's interesting, though. You're just 22 and you're thinking that. I mean, why is that? Like, what does that tell us about society, right? That you have to kind of know at 22 what you want to be for the rest of your life. Uh, mm hmm what do you think you had this perspective that you couldn't change at the f at first? Well, I was thinking um, I did five years of school uh, for digital business. Mm -hmm. uh, other people did five years of design school. So I'm not going to do another ah. five years now to catch up. So I thought, well, it's too late. But this is very much um, a discipline that you can teach yourself differently. How? How differently? So what's the difference between learning... a uh, going through business school and design school? Well, what I meant in that is that for design or uh, programming, for instance, you can very much find ways to give yourself the skills and still find work without having a traditional diploma. What I did is um, I just read a lot online. I learned a lot. I did some projects uh, for myself, for friends, uh, hackathons. Um, mm. I did a lot of online courses around UX design, UX research. Um, and that allowed me little by little to also take, take jobs as a self-employed person that were going more and more towards UX. So it was a, you know, a transition. Yeah. At the same time, you were having your day-to-day -day job, right? Uh, as a project manager. At, and at the same time, you're studying and learning about UX. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How does one start learning about a topic? Because when you're in school, there are courses, you right? Like everything is, is planned for you. You can just go there and they say, okay, now you study this, then you study that. But how do you learn a skill or a subject just by yourself? Where, where did you start it? How did you organize your studies? Mm, I think I just started first reading a lot of articles online and finding the, the good sources. Um, there's a lot on Medium about UX and design. There's okay. a lot on uh, nngroup.com. Uh, mm -hmm. Just finding these sources and then figuring out, like researching for online courses. Mm -hmm. 
and okay. seeing what I can do, what is doable next to my full-time job. Right. Um, and yeah, I made the transition that way. Mm -hmm. And then you also, I guess, learned from doing certain projects, as you said, like doing hackathons, working for friends. Then you also learn in the way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, okay. uh, very important, seeing how other people who already do UX design okay. work, learning mm -hmm. from them, like being in contact with them, looking at their work, asking questions. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Get get a mentor, basically, right? Some people that yeah. can teach you. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, the, I, I just realized that there's something that we, we didn't speak about, which I think is kind of important for our conversation, which is what is UX design? <laughs> You're deciding how um, how something works, basically. Okay. It's it's very it's a vague definition, but there's so much that can go into UX depending on what you're working on. Mm -hmm. That yeah, it's really about how it works, and within how it works, um, what it looks like is important. But right. if you take a, a more holistic look at UX design, it's how it works. Mm -hmm. So let, let's take a, an example. I am um, a client, right? And uh, what would the clients, when, when, when you get a new client, um, what would they ask you? Like what material would they give you so that you can start? What, what do you ask for when, when you first have a new client? That really depends on the project. Um, okay. do, you have like, do you have like a, a, a project in mind that you worked on? Maybe more for UX research, actually. Okay. Um, for UX research, say someone wants to test an interface that they already have. Right. Um, so we're going to do user tests. So what I would ask is um, we need to figure out who are the type of people who are going to test the interface. So I ask mm -hmm. them what their goals are, who their target is, um, who their users currently are, if they already have some. Mm -hmm. um, and then we need to figure out the research questions, which isn't necessarily yet the detailed questions of the interview, but rather right. um, what they want to find out with the user tests in general. Mm. So we want to verify that this is uh, usable, that this other part of the interface is well understood, this and that. And mm, right. once we have all of that, we're going to be able to flesh out like I make the interview protocol, basically, so all the questions. Right. How do you get people to interview? It depends what the goal is and who the target is. So for some clients, um, they work with a recruitment agency mm -hmm. who is going to take care of recruiting people who match the target. Right. Um, for some other clients, they already have a user base, so we're going to contact people within their user base and see who is willing to participate okay so they um, provide you already with a with the interviewees the, the people that you interview yeah in general most of the time mm -hmm. or okay. yeah we need to figure out the details together another way but most of the time um i don't have to like it, it's not going to be and it should shouldn't be just like asking your friends or your family yeah of course yeah because yeah. they are definitely biased um yeah also and they don't necessarily like they're not going to be the target. a good match necessarily for the target mm, got it yeah how 
Where, where do you do these interviews? Is like, uh, can you do it from your laptop or do you need to be in the same physical space as the person you're interviewing? Yeah, it depends on a lot of things. Uh, if you are only interviewing people in one city, which, you know, is a narrow uh, scope for a user mm -hmm. base, if you mm -hmm. have a, an online product, there are specific rooms that you can rent uh, if you want to go there with a... Um, one-way mirror so that ah, people can wow. observe. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like in the police station or something. <laughs> <laughs> But it really depends on your budget and what you want to do. Most of the times, users are in so many different countries that you have to do. Um, either you do what I do most of the times, remote interview on the computer mm -hmm. or um, on projects that have big budgets, you can hire user research agencies in those different countries and who speak the language there well, if yeah. you have like pretty big scale product and a lot mm. of budget and they're oh. going to conduct like in country a you're going to have research agency a who's going to conduct the interviews in language a and same mm. in country b and again in country c and yeah right. all that is going to be translated and then you can do the analysis from all of that but mm. that's a completely different scale of budget so How worth it is the investment in the UX research? Because I used to work in uh, Trivago and we had an in-house team just to do research and all the fancy equipment and so on. And it was, I, would, I would learn a lot because I, I did some projects and did, we did some research. But in the end, a lot of project managers would say that it's not significant. And uh, we are just interviewing a couple of people, 5, 20, 30 people, and they say that uh, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to get uh, a proper conclusion. Do, do you get that a lot? Uh, not so much. So you're not researching for the same thing, whether you're doing quantitative research or qualitative research. Right. So what is um, the difference? Uh, quantitative is going to be um, survey, large-scale research that you're going to uh, do towards, I don't know, uh, hundreds, thousands of people. Again, mm -hmm. depending, it's relative depending with your total user base. Um, and your qualitative research is more used to explain what you get from quantitative research. Right. Or like quantitative insights. Maybe you have analytics on your site that mm -hmm. allow you to get uh, quantitative insights. Right. Um For qualitative research, you don't need to have as big of a number of interviewees. Um, but it's also true that, say, if you just interview three people, it's not going to be that worth it. Right. So how many? what's the minimum amount of people you need to interview to get some uh, uh, conclusion, conclusion? It depends. So for me, it depends both on your user base and... Uh, just the number of user journeys that you want to test because on some right. uh, big, more complex projects, you're not going to necessarily want to test just one uh, flow, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you want to test three or four, then you're going to have to multiply um, how many you want to test one journey times the number of journey you want to test. Right, got it. Do you think it's also important for uh, bootstrappers Uh, to do this kind of uh, surveys and to, or or this kind of research for their products? I think so, yeah. I think you can learn, uh, you can definitely learn from that. 
Um, I did it once I worked <laughs> some years ago. I started making a mobile game. Okay, um, cool. And yeah, remember Called I conducted... Called Flappy Bird? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but yeah, like just a simple uh, maze game yeah. uh, with different levels. And I also conducted, I think I did around eight or ten user interviews from people from all over Mm-hmm. Um, and it was quite fun to set up, to figure out how to set up uh, user interviews uh, remote on a mobile phone in a way that I could see the screen of the phones of my testers in real time. That oh, yeah. was a whole thing. Is there a tool for that already? Uh, yeah, yeah, there is. Okay. At the time I used, I think it was called TeamViewer. TeamViewer, um, yeah. yeah. Team, TeamViewer... Yeah, but then how do you connect with the phones? Or does TeamViewer also work for the phone? Yeah, yeah, it also ah. worked on the phone. If that's, cool. I think that's the tool I used. It was four years ago, so I'm not yeah, so yeah. sure anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. How do you convince someone to to participate in such a study? Like, uh, do, did you pay them or how, how do you convince them? So in that case, I didn't pay them. Um, if people are really interested in the topic, sometimes... They don't need um, compensation. Okay. Uh, however, if you're a, a big company, a company that has more means, mm-hmm. then you're going to want to indeed give a retribution for people's time, especially if it's not remote and they have to go somewhere to be interviewed by you. Right. Yeah. Um, so in that case, there's this either like monetary reward, um, a coupon on something websites, some goodies. It really mm-hmm. depends, yeah. Right, right. Interesting. I, I definitely agree that doing this kind of research is really important. And even for simple things like landing pages, where I'm constantly trying to update my landing page because as a builder, right, when I make something, I understand it, right, because I made it. But it doesn't mean that others can immediately look at it and understand it. So I, I totally agree that just uh, by doing these iterations, getting some outside perspectives you can learn a lot and it's really interesting um yeah, yeah. How, how did you do the, this transition from your job to a full-time uh, business owner or freelancer or what you want to call it but how did it go like how, how was this transition like did you have like, a lot of clients before uh did you just do the switch even without making the money how, how did that go so when I first made the switch from employee to self-employed, um, I was first still searching for web project management jobs. So I didn't do, um, the say, the administrative switch and the job switch at the same time. So that was easier. Interesting. Um, and then uh, when I, I quit my full-time job, um, as an employee and I started searching for freelance job, I always thought, well, if I don't have something by um, that date, I mm-hmm. have to start searching for employee jobs again. Right. So you, um, you really had a time there without any income? Yeah, I had money on the side, but I didn't have incoming money. Okay, okay. How, how stressful was that part? Um, it was stressful, but the fact that I had given myself a clear date by which uh, if I don't have clients by then, I mm-hmm. go back to normal employment. That yeah. was useful to have given myself that limit preemptively. How long was the runway in terms of time? 
Oh, I don't remember. Some some months, but I don't remember. Okay. Because um, I did the something... same for, for me, but uh, it's been nine months. <laughs> you know, so I was wondering, was it like two months, three months, 12 months? What was the range? Do you remember? I think I, I had at least about six months. Six months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something else that was useful is that th- that was just pure luck, right? But when I was working as an employee, uh, we had a range of clients at my agency. Mm. And then to search for freelance work, I signed up on Malt, which is the biggest um, freelancing platform in France. Okay. And one of the, like, someone who worked um, at a company that was our clients when I was working at the agency was also searching for freelancers and they saw me on that platform. They verified that I had indeed worked for them before. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, come in like tomorrow. Right. And that was my first client. And that was pure luck. But it was a very big company, but it was pure luck that they were also searching for someone at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we had had them as a client and that I knew people there, I could name people, I could name projects that we had done for them. That was really useful. Yeah. And by the way, that's another perk of working for someone else. At first, right, you build a network. And, uh, yeah. and you say it was luck, but it was also network, right? You already met them. And that's also why you, you were able to, to get a job uh, with them. What is the big difference from uh, being a freelancer and working for someone else? Because the job was kind of the same, right? So what were the big differences? Mm, the job wasn't really the same. Um, but the big differences, I think, are there is for sure more uncertainty working for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also more flexibility, more right. freedom. Um, yeah, and there's less security and you have to balance all of that out. Right. And also there are ways to maximize your chances in a way, like making sure, paying attention to... Um, how you present yourself in a way, how you market yourself, uh, mm-hmm. being very proactive in searching for clients. Um, right. Yeah. A lot so of a lot things. of work that you, you you didn't have to do back when you were working for someone else, right? Like the marketing part. I, I think this is something that all entrepreneurs, when they first started, are not expecting that marketing would take such a portion of their lives, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. to get the first clients. Uh, was that yeah. okay for you or did you enjoy it uh, or was it a struggle? Um, it was something to learn for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was okay. I mean, it's it's just, it's part of the, if you want to be self-employed, it's part of the game. Okay. Right. Just right. like, I'm like, just, okay, accept it and move on. Mm-hmm. And one thing you, you just also mentioned uh, that there's much more uncertainty, um, which it's, can be really hard to deal with uh, for some people. But I, I was reading some of your interviews here in a blog post and you described your routine. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this routine, it's so organized. So at least when I read it, you said that you wake up at 7 a.m., which for, for me, it's amazing. And then you work and then you go to the gym uh, and then you cook healthy food. So it's such a structured routine. Like for me, I cannot understand. Like I don't even know what time I'm going to wake up tomorrow. Does this help uh, to deal with the, with this uncertainty? Um, 
So for me, it's more than when the uncertainty is too high, then all of your habits start falling apart. Right. And so for me, that's why it's important to have strong and healthy habits in place. Okay. Makes sense. So I don't... I don't still wake up at 7 a.m. every day, uh, <laughs> not at all. But when I can, um, yeah, it helps me. Because okay. for, I have noticed that for how I work, it's useful for me to start early, start the day early, um, to go to the gym three or four times a week, mm. all of these things that I have noticed are useful to me. So right. if, I can, if I'm in a, in, a, in a period where I can afford to have that in place then i go right. for it yeah that's what i was about to ask do you keep these habits when you are in a very stressful period trying to find clients or do you just drop these habits while you're trying to figure uh things out um if it's really 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 stressful like the most stressful it's been Mm -hmm. Usually it's very reduced. So instead I would go to the gym once or twice per week. Okay. And, But you try to yeah. keep some uh, physical activity and so on, right? Yes, because it's so beneficial. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, to keep your yeah. your mind sane, you need to also to keep your body sane, right? So I think that's definitely true. Um, yeah. What, what, um, what do you do for exercise? Yeah, I, that's why I'm asking because I, I've kind of dropped... A lot of my exercise now, also because I'm I used to live in Germany and now I moved back to Portugal and you need to some time to settle and find places where you can do sports and so on. Uh, so now I'm trying to go back and and do I don't like gym so like I'm trying to to find uh, some like physical sports like maybe some martial arts uh, I like playing volleyball so I'm trying to set up everything you know because you need to have a routine. But uh, it's been definitely a struggle because that plus being an entrepreneur and only thinking about your project uh, can be really, really tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same for me. I've just arrived in Berlin 10 days ago. 10 days? Okay. Yeah. And so I have found a gym. I've signed up. But because there's been, yeah, there's work and there's getting settled and there's um, administrative paperwork to do and... Soon I'm going to start flat, flat hunting as well. Oh, so, that's, that's hard task in Germany. <laughs> yeah. So I don't like, and there's no point in blaming yourself if you can have as strong of a routine in those moments because mm -hmm. it's kind of normal. If you can, yeah. it's great. If you can't, okay, it's fine. Like, you know why and you know that as soon as you're going to have a more uh, stable environment and life, then you're going to be able to go back to the gym. Yeah. So. Definitely. I think I think it still should be a, somehow a priority, something that you, you keep in mind. Otherwise, you might forget and it's, you know, spend long, long time without moving from your chair, right? Especially because as a, <laughs> as a developer or entrepreneur, I'm always, you know, sitting down, working from home. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's also really important. Um, you you started getting more clients, I guess, and then, then you decided to do the transition to the UX part right? Mm -hmm. uh, the UX research. Um, was it easy for you to price like, or to get confidence to get these new gigs as a UX researcher? Because, or at least give, tell me about the first one, right? So I know that you had a lot of gigs with some of your friends and hackathons, uh, pro bono, let's say, but the first mm -hmm. paying client, how did it feel? So... Yeah, pricing myself, I was definitely pricing myself low 
in part because it's true that I didn't have that magic experience as a UX researcher. Um, and in part because I really, really wanted the job, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't necessarily a good way to do it because then you find uh, clients who prefer you pressing higher because then they have more trust in the quality of your work. Right. Um, but given the little experience I had at the time, I couldn't really, you know, there was no sense in me doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the first job is the most difficult one to get. And once you have that, you can show that and you no longer have people who tell you, um, but you have zero experience. You right. need to have something that you can show. Okay. So it's, it's okay to maybe get a bit underpaid in the first gig because you are getting a lot of experience and reputation that then you can just use to get other gigs, right? I don't know if it's my place to say whether it's okay or not, but that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> At least it worked <laughs> for you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so I, I also wanted to chat a little bit about the well-being part. Uh, I, I think there's still obviously a lot to learn from from your freelancing journey. But since we are a little bit short on time, um, I find this super interesting, right? Like in, in, in this world with social media, with people living in their phones uh, and measuring themselves against the whole world with, you know, unfair filters and so on, well-being is becoming something crucial for uh, for people, for makers, for digital makers. Where did this interest for that particular field of UX came to be for you? I think there are two things. On one side, I kind of noticed the consequences on myself and on the people around me of products that weren't um, necessarily designed for well-being or designed with well-being in mind. Mm-hmm. And the second aspect is that working myself in tech and in UX, I could notice the design patterns, the mechanisms behind all of that, and I could see how it could be designed differently. Okay. Can you give an example uh, of the products that you noticed were not very healthy for you and the ones around you? Um, yeah, super simple example. Um, around 20. 14, 2015, I was using Instagram. I was uh, posting photos there and using it really to grow my account. And I was doing kind of um, abstract, surreal photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it started getting an obligation for me more than something that I was enjoying. Right. So I was growing the account to 1.5K, 2K followers. Uh, and I was really enjoying the taking photos part, but mm. then at some point it became a task that I have to do daily. Right. And yeah, that's the, um, you know, the fact that you're measuring um, something and your, you know, Instagram in particular has a, a heavy impact on self-esteem and body image. So this isn't yeah, necessarily yeah. about body image or self-esteem, but mm-hmm. there's a whole competition aspect of this um there's a whole um uh, hormonal aspect as well because uh you get drive you get motivation Mm. so it plays with your dopamine but you also um have the competition aspect whether it's with yourself or with others um Mm -hmm. and there is like this tool is put out in the world but you don't give people 
neither um, the ways to use it in a way that they really understand how it works on their brain and how it affects their brain, mm-hmm. um, nor like um, just ways to use it that is going to be beneficial for them. Like, don't get sucked in the trap. So at the time, for instance, you didn't even have the thing that when you keep scrolling on Instagram, you have a message saying, oh, you've caught up with all of your posts right. and you're done and you can stop to keep you scrolling. You had the infinity wasn't... scroll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have any mechanisms like that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that that's uh, the you are all caught up mechanism is already an effort to to be more uh, uh, for a better well-being is that I, I never noticed that i never thought of that actually uh but yeah now you you have that interesting yeah now you have that and um it's good but there is still more work mm. and there's still like recently uh research that found the impact on instagram uh, the impact of instagram uh, especially on young people and even more especially on girls Mm-hmm. Uh, for everything again around um, yeah self-esteem body image, image. Mm-hmm. and then you have all the things with um, filters mm-hmm. uh, that make you look something completely different yeah. and you yeah there's a <laughs> I can talk about it for too long so I'm not yeah. going to expand more but yeah no I love it I love the topic um, one thing that I I just um Well, I guess now I, when I use social media, it's mostly for my projects. Obviously, more in my, I guess, uh, early 20s or teenage years, uh, Facebook and all of that. I, I used to use it more in a social way. But even, as you mentioned, as a, for a business, right? You want to grow it. You want to get more followers. Uh, but then you have the algorithm. And the algorithm, uh, it's kind of this evil entity that makes you work every day and show up every day and always create content and content that people like otherwise they will kind of cap your visibility um but in the same time that's what makes money to these platforms right so that's what i find really interesting which is when some client comes to you and asks chloe i I need i I want to improve the well-being do they realize that they probably will have to make less money and compromise their revenue. I haven't had any clients um, who had mechanisms like that, so... But uh, but in, in a more general aspect, uh, like I remember, for instance, when I was working for Trivago, we were always measuring the clicks, right? So let's change the button, the, the, the color of this button, and uh, let's see if it improves. And oh, improves 0.1%, great. I guess for Facebook, for Twitter, I don't know, you probably have an opinion on how it will be the future of these platforms. Will they cap their money, cap their revenue towards a better well-being? Or is there a need for ex- external forces, like a police of social media to come and say, no, you cannot do that, uh, or some kind of regulation? What, what do you think the future of social mm. media will be in that sense? Well, that's hard to tell. Um There is like some tech regulation. Um, I think the the more promising path that we see so far is that more and more people are becoming aware of the potential dangers of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and they either adapt their behavior or they demand something different from 
the companies behind these products. Yeah, and also, you know, all the scandals, I'm talking about that again, but the scandals of when it was made very apparent that Instagram themselves were aware that they were having such a disastrous impact on young girls, um, you know, that also puts pressure. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping, I, I don't think that companies would necessarily go towards well-being out of their own sheer volition, but maybe okay. from raising awareness and uh, pressure. Um, I think that's how it's more likely that we're mm-hmm. going to go towards these considerations. Do you, do you see that more and more clients are coming to you mostly for uh, for these uh, topics? So to, to get some help on... Uh... Well, UX well-being design? I, I'm still mostly um, working with clients for UX research and a little bit for coaching. Okay. Um, so I don't really, I can't really tell you about that mm. yet. Hopefully, let's say if we have another interview one year from now, yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> Because your goal is, is to focus more in that area, right? Yeah. Design for well-being, for sure. And also digital wellness directly in being a coach and um, helping people with their digital life. Ah, so like normal people, you know, that don't have a business, you just help them to get rid of their, I guess, Instagram addiction or Twitter addiction. That's something you do as well? Um, Things like that, yeah. So I've started um, uh, a training uh, for digital wellness coaching. Mm-hmm. That I started doing in September, and I'm gonna finish it in um, end of April, so a month and a half from now. Right. Um, and yeah, it's about coaching for digital well-being. So I've had a few clients for that already, uh, and for now I've kind of paused it, and I'm going to resume in a month or so. But right now I'm doing the move to it's Berlin so and all of that, so it's not mm-hmm. priority. Yeah. So, as a last question for you, I wanted to ask if there are there are a lot of bootstra- bootstrappers and making makers building their products that are listening to this podcast. And I, what what are your tips for someone that wants to build a digital product that is still balanced and uh, doesn't affect that much the well-being of their users? Hmm, good question. Um... My, the first thing that comes to mind is don't use dark patterns. Um, don't use uh, design techniques that are um, deceiving the user. Hmm. Uh, don't use addictive patterns. Um, don't use, um, you know, fake senses of urgency saying uh, you have uh, three days left to do to, um, to use this offer when it's it's fake or you have... Uh, two items left in stock when it's fake. Mm-hmm. Um, be very transparent in your copywriting. Um, yeah, be clear. Don't guilt users who want to unsubscribe. Don't make it complicated for them to unsubscribe. Um, yeah, all of that. And if you, you know, if you're in doubt, just ask around and do some do some research, like do some user research. Yeah, great tips. As I think there, it was a motto in, in Google, don't be evil, <laughs> right? Yeah. I know that you want to, to have money. I know that you want to get clients, but uh, tricking them is not the way, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Glo, uh, for taking your time and, and sharing your journey here with the wannabe entrepreneurs. It was really a pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you. I will share your Twitter, your newsletter, um, and your website in the show notes. And uh, for the listeners, if you like this kind of content and you want to learn more from uh, other entrepreneurs, their journeys and um, their paths, you can just go to wannabe-entrepreneur.com and uh, there are a lot of interviews for you. This was another Wannabe Entrepreneur. See you next time. <laughs>